Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. How can we be better listeners? And what's the difference between active listening and deep listening? On episode 32 of The B-Side, I speak to Oscar Trimboli. He is an author, host of the Apple award-winning podcast, Deep Listening, and a sought-after keynote speaker. Oscar has interviewed over 100 of the most diverse workplace listeners, including air traffic controllers, deaf and foreign language interpreters, hostage negotiators, and spies as part of his research. He's a marketing and technology industry veteran working for Microsoft, PeopleSoft, Polycom, and Vodafone. We cover a range of topics, everything from the neuroscience of listening, the barriers to listening at work, the five levels of listening, and I try and apply some of his tips on effective and deep listening myself throughout the interview. This was a wonderful episode. I really enjoyed speaking to Oscar. I've learned a whole bunch of new things about active listening and how being a deep listener can enable us to create new connections and find new ways of expressing ideas, thoughts and feelings far more effectively. I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I do. Cheers. Oscar Trimboli, how are you, sir? G'day, James. Looking forward to listening to your questions and seeing what two people together will create. Oscar, why don't we get straight into it? And in the theme of listening, I'm going to ask you a series of questions and I'm going to try and apply a lot of the learnings you share with millions of people around the world and use this as an opportunity to um, maybe help our audience come along with us in that journey and maybe get something out of it themselves. So I I will start by asking you, where this journey began. This journey that we're talking about today started in a boardroom in April 2008. Um, Why it was memorable was there was still the smell of smoke in the air conditioning system because we'd had bushfires in in the local area. And it was an annual budget setting process that was 18 people on video conference between three different offices, Seattle, Singapore and Sydney, and it was going for 90 minutes. There were 18 people on this video conference. And at the 20-minute mark, my vice president looked me straight in the eye and said, Oscar, I need to see you immediately after this meeting. Now, I don't know about you, James, but when your boss says they need to see you immediately after this meeting, it wasn't good. And uh, for the time the meeting continued on, All I was trying to figure out is how many weeks of salary have I got left in my bank account? (laughs) Because surely I'm going to get fired. (laughs) Anyway, the meeting finished 70 minutes in, not 90 minutes in. It finished actually early. It finished quite productively. And Tracy asked me to close the door. Oh, right. Was that behind you? (laughs) She asked me she asked me to close the door and come and sit next to her and oh, as I walked walked across from the door to the seat she said you have no idea what you did at the 20 minute mark do you and in that moment I'm thinking I'm getting fired I don't know why I'm getting fired and can we just get this over and done with really really quickly so I sat down next to her and she looked me straight in the eye and she was very direct she says 
If you could code the way you listen, you could change the world. And in that moment of profound listening on Tracy's part, James, the only thing going through my head was, woohoo, I'm being <laughs> fired, wonderful. And honestly, I never thought about all this stuff she was telling me about coding, listening, and the only thing I could get out of my mouth, and I was working at Microsoft at the time, she said, I said to her, Tracy, do you mean code or code code? She goes, Oscar, we're at Microsoft, I mean code. So what she meant was code the way I listen into software and, you know, wind the clock forward. That's the journey I've been on, coding into books, coding into jigsaw puzzle games, coding into playing cards, pl- coding into listening assessments, and... uh all, all, all this way of trying to make listening something that's easier to access for everybody. But two weeks later, back in that uh, meeting with Tracy, Brian, our chief financial officer, says to me, hey, Oscar, tomorrow I'm doing the Australian budget setting meeting. Can you come and audit my listening? Oh, <laughs> and right. I just laughed. I said, Brian, you know I've got a 32% increase in my budget. And I have no idea how to do it. I haven't got time for any of this listening caper. <laughs> and uh, you can see how bought into, if you could code the way you listen, you could change the world, James. And Brian said something that really resonated with somebody who was short of a budget. And he said, look, Oscar, we can't fix the top line for your budget, but what we can do is get additional resources to help you invest and get closer to your budget line. And me... I was like, okay, you want me to come and audit your listening? I'm going to get some more budget. Fine, no problem. So I sat in a 90-minute meeting and went, oh, wow, he asked really long questions. Oh, right. Oh, he, he doesn't actually allow them to finish their answer. Oh, there's 10 people in the room, but he's only listening to three of them. Hmm. He doesn't ask any clarifying questions, and slowly but surely... I started the process of coding the way I listened. And now I'm on a quest to create 100 million deep listeners in the world, James. That's the story. And what a story it is. And what a goal to set for yourself, 100 million listeners. Well, that's no small task. Well, there's a funny thing about the goal. Um, Because the goal started off at 10,000. And then the goal went to a million. And I, I was sitting down... Over a video conference again, these things scare me, I guess. And I I was talking with Kevin in Atlanta, and he said to me, Oscar, even McDonald's sells more burgers than you've got. You know, my goal at the time was a million deep listeners. And he he said, come back next month and bring me a goal that's worthy of your ambition. And uh, I came back and I said, well, 100 million, Kevin. Um, I'm never going to achieve that in my lifetime. And he said, exactly. But the way you will go about bringing listening to the world will be completely different. And if you can achieve it in your lifetime, Oscar, it's not worth going for, is what Kevin said back to me. So whether it's the books or the playing cards or Kevin, everything I've learned along this journey has been me just listening to other people. Uh, I haven't come up with an original idea myself, James. You've interviewed over, you know, hundreds, hundreds, thousands of uh, people from diverse backgrounds. What are some of the things you think people have in common? What are some of the themes, I guess, that you're seeing or have seen through this research and, and how can people 
be better, deeper listeners? That was a very long question. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I think for most listeners, if they understood these three numbers, listening had become easy and light rather than difficult and draining. Sure. 125, 400, and 900. These three numbers, we're going to spend a little bit of time with James and you and I can have a conversation about what these numbers mean for you as well. I speak at 125 words per minute. You are listening right now at 400 words per minute. So the first thing I want people to know as listeners, it's okay to be distracted. In fact, while you're listening to this conversation, you are distracted. You could be gardening, you could be cooking, you could be cleaning, you could be driving, you could be commuting, you could be doing any other length of things. And you might be distracted by me mentioning McDonald's hamburgers earlier on. Welcome back. <laughs> uh, or you, you may be at a, a time where you're, you're listening more to your stomach grumble because you haven't eaten rather than listening to Oscar talk about listening. Because we can listen four times faster than the speaker can speak, I want you to know that the knowledge that you will be distracted is really powerful. It, the difference between a good listener and a deep listener isn't that they get distracted. So one of the things that comes up in the research, James, is people say to me, hey, Oscar, uh, how do I stop being distracted? And I go, look, I don't think that's the question you want to ask me. I think the question you want to ask me is what do I do when I am distracted? Because some people will just drift away. Sure, sure. And, and they'll be out of the conversation for an extended period of time. And... What I want you to know is that just knowing you will be distracted often is the most powerful knowledge to bring you back into the conversation much quicker and give yourself permission to go, it's okay. Because sure. the mind is an amazing thing. For the speaker, it's worse though. So although I can speak at 125 words a minute, I can think at 900. All right. So I'm thinking so at 900. Yeah, so I can think at 900 words per minute, but I can only say 125 each minute. So there's, there's a very simple bit of maths that says the very first thing that the speaker says is probably not what they think completely or what they mean fully. Sure. So when you're listening to somebody and they say something and then you say something and then they say something, just know you get and get better odds at a casino than the 11% of words that are going across your mouth and theirs because listening is a simultaneous equation. You're listening and speaking and speaking and listening all at the same time in a conversation. So your role as a listener is not actually to make sense of what they say but help them to express what they really, really mean. And sometimes it might take only one extra go Sometimes it might take two. But when you do, what will happen? The speaker will change their shoulder position. They'll go into a much more upright position. They'll probably sigh. And they'll use these wonderful phrases. They'll use phrases like, you know what? <laughs> or actually what I meant to say was, now mm, that I think mm. about it a little longer, what matters to me is... When they use these magic phrases, you know you're starting to help them to listen to what they want to say, 
not what they said the first time. Sure. I think for many of us, a conversation is like an email we send without editing it. And I don't know about you, James, but most people edit an email before they send it. A book author probably edits their book with an editor before they print it. So for many of us, why do we treat a conversation any differently from any other form of communication? I'm sure in your workplace and with your creative pursuits, you know that aha moment. You've seen it yourself. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how much of this is cultural. And two questions. One, why do people feel the need to... So if we're thinking at 900 words per minute, we can listen at 400 words per minute, but we can communicate through sound words what we're thinking at 125 words Mm. per minute. Why do we still culturally, and more so, this is a Western lens I'm putting on things here. Well, why are we so uncomfortable with silence? And and why do we feel so compelled to fill that silence with, uh, for lack of a better word, small talk? That would be my first question. The second question would be, how does listening vary across cultures? When we think about the West, I just want to clarify something with you, uh, are you talking about different cultures in different workplaces or are you just kind of generic I'm, Western I'm, cultures? Yeah, I, and it's part of me for, for my listeners, but I'm probably just um, talking about the homogenous notion of Western culture. Um, now, uh, not so much the the multicultural aspect of Western culture, which is uh, even nuanced and, and far more diverse and so on that I'm getting, currently giving it credit for. I'm talking about the, I guess, the, uh, the Anglosphere. In Western Anglo cultures, because I think uh, many of us, it, it's about as easy to lump Western Anglo into one lump as it is to lump Asia or Africa into one lump, I think. Sure, you yeah. know, so, Somebody from Ireland will have a very different perspective for somebody from Wales who will have a very different perspective from somebody from New Zealand, as an example, and they, they would all fit in that description. Um, I think in Western language, there are phrases that are embedded in the way workplaces speak. It's called the deafening silence, the awkward silence, the pregnant pause. And many workplace leaders stimulate the presence of speech and the speed of the answer rather than the quality of the answer because they have seen it practiced by somebody they've been led by. Sure. When when you're in high-context cultures, Maori, uh, the Australian Indigenous communities, Korean, Japanese, Thai... Uh, Chinese cultures, authority and wisdom comes from silence and pause. And it not only for the leader to reflect on what they're thinking about in those high-context cultures, but also to help the group reflect on what they've been thinking about as well. So I think in the West... Speed is correlated to expertise in answer. Sure. And yet it's false. 
because you can drive a car in the wrong direction really fast because you didn't take the time to plug in the GPS coordinates or look at a map. And most of the Western things we talk about, James, are really just role modelling. It actually comes back to Western education systems. So in Western education systems, you are taught to pattern match and look and listen for similarities. And when you do, you talk to that. But in these higher context cultures, they value variety and difference more and they will listen for difference and similarity rather than exclusively listening for something that matches a pattern of a historical situation or an evidence base that they know about. Too many Western conversations take place with assumptions not being overtly shared. So an example, I asked for a bit of a clarification about what you meant by culture earlier on. But if I was in a workplace, I would have answered that question instantly and probably answered the wrong question. So I think for a lot of us, it's just taking the time to clarify, this is what I heard, is that what you meant? Mm. Do you think people feel threatened? Sorry to cut you off. I'm I'm failing. (laughs) I've been trying to apply your principles and I'm failing because I just really interrupted which is a great point. What is your? What are your thoughts on interruptions? Because this happens quite a lot. People are struggling to get these 900 thoughts out of their heads, and they mm. do so at a point like I just did. I tried to um, – I, I found a break, and I interrupted you whilst you were on a flow. And part of that might come due to sort of some deep-set need for me to express my thought right now, impatience. What are your thoughts on that, just before we track back to what you were originally Yeah, saying? I, I think – I think skillful professional interruption is a wonderful listening skill. And it's when it's done well, it's really powerful for the speaker, the listener, and if you're in a group context, the wider group. And there, there are times to interrupt when uh, the, the content of the conversation is becoming repetitive, circular in a debate, and not making progress. When you're interrupting merely to assert your point, that's an unproductive example of interruption. And again, just overlaying the two concepts, particularly in South America and Eastern Europe, the speed at which you speak and interrupt over each other is actually a sign of a good relationship. All right. So... These things are quite nuanced across cultures as well. So uh, the I don't know if you've ever got drunk with a Brazilian, but the pace at which these people can talk at is quite amazing. And uh, one of the things we, we know, like our researchers are only in Western English-speaking workplaces, but because of our deep listening ambassador community, which is spread all around the world, we get really powerful insights and subtle nuances like the Eastern European examples and the South American examples that Mm. sometimes talking over each other is a sign of a good relationship rather than a disrespectful interruption. But if you go up to Japan, you will hear the wonderful... And that's not because they're saying stop. They're just taking in a deep breath to ponder what you're talking about. And the leader in that sense is really setting the state for the room. Sure. 
Do you find when it comes to your interruptions, is it is it more driven by you feeling like you haven't had a chance to speak? When when does interruption show up for you? With my background in the agency world as a creative, and especially facilitating the sharing of ideas and doing it in quite an organic, free-flowing manner. I think that's where the interruption stems from. And when I really reflect on why I'm doing that, I think it's because I'm inspired by something you've said and my habit is to build on that. Mm. And and so it's not an ego-driven interruption because I feel my point is more valid than yours. It's because I'm playing, I'm bouncing, I'm searching for a to expand on a thought that you've thrown out there. Mm. I, I think um, – but it's something I'm more mindful of, and I think that having done the podcast for a while, I think I've I've learnt that unless that response is invited during that time, then um, if I'm interrupting, I'm still interrupting, regardless of the the – the motivations for it because you may be needing to finish that thought yourself, you know? So I think that's, I think an, and for you to explore there though, is when you make the implicit explicit, if you declared to the group right at the beginning today, you may notice that when I come into a conversation, you may perceive it as an interruption. My intention is, to build on the idea for the group. So when I do come in, uh, that's my intention. I think the group will have a very different perspective on interruption for you if you declare, this is my communication style. And I think, again, when it comes to listening, the more we can make the implicit explicit, whether that's expanding our assumptions that may sit behind uh, a part of the dialogue or just discussing how we're going to discuss things. I, I think for you, an interesting challenge might be to say that up front in the next meeting that you facilitate and notice what the group does with it. Just hanging with the cultural aspect of things and the different ways people listen and respond. What are some tips based on, say, Brazilians and how you would respond to them? How would you keep up with that rapid-fire discussion without getting thrown while still listening in a way that is quite conducive. Or Japan, for example. Maybe we could just stick with those two cultures because they're at different ends of the spectrum, I would imagine. Uh, You make me think of Elaine. 2015, I'm facilitating a board meeting. uh, and It's a really narrow room. I, I remember it because there was so much of that whiteboard dust in the room and there's 12 people in the room uh, and myself. And it's, it's a company that's struggling with growth and I'm facilitating a group of people. And I, I know that it's getting close to one o'clock because the lunch break is happening and the CEO is literally doing this, tapping on, (laughs) tapping on the table and then pointing to his watch. Now the exercise we've done as a group was an exercise, no doubt, you would have done sometimes, James. I was trying to get the group to come to a common understanding of how they describe themselves, and I'd ask them to describe themselves as an animal. How does this organisation perform as an animal? And 11 people had spoken, and they all described something that was fast-moving, agile, 
either a bird of prey or some kind of land-based animal. It, it was a cheetah, it was a eagle, it was an osprey, and right at the end was Elaine from a different culture and a different profession from everybody in the room, and she hadn't spoken. And the CEO is still looking at me, tapping away at his watch, and I was going to hear from everybody in the room. We wanted to, to listen to all the opinions. Now, everybody had described the bird, its speed and pace, and I just turned ever so slightly towards her and I didn't make eye contact and I just put my hand out about halfway extended on my body and she said something that was really interesting she said I thought it was obvious and you could feel the tension in the room because she wasn't speaking at the speed of the rest of the room But as a card-carrying member of the introvert community, she did a really good job of just stepping back and synthesizing. And so I just extended my arm a little bit further out towards her and I didn't make eye contact, I was just in her general direction. And she said, I thought we were a snake. Now, James, when you think of a snake, what's going through your mind? Machiavellian... um uh, sneaky, untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. They're probably the three. Yeah. And the tension in the room was peaking. And I reckon if I was in a comic strip, the laser beam from the eyes of the CEO would have exploded <laughs> my head in that moment. Mm. She said, I thought we were a snake because we've forgotten to shed our skin every season. We've got old processes and old habits, and we haven't evolved from where we were in the past. Mm -hmm. Now, what you don't know about Elaine was she was from a culture that was the Chinese culture, and snakes mean very different things than they mean in Western cultures. And if we hadn't taken the time to listen. Now, remember, lunch was supposed to be at 1 o'clock, and I know that the sandwiches started to be eaten at one thirty-five, because then they got into a really big debate as a group, which Elaine was really into and contributing to. And eventually they agreed that the processes, the systems that were holding them back and even the mindset, it was time for them to shed their skin. And internally they started codenaming the products they were developing based on various snakes and it became oh, a real wow. real subculture yeah. there. Mm. The The point is really simple. It would have been easy to go to lunch and not hear from finance, which is where she was from, yet she had the biggest insight because she had a diverse cultural perspective. Now, in yeah. the West, a snake is an origin story of evil and why humans work and a whole bunch of other things, but in other cultures exactly the same image, the same communication can mean something completely different. If you're not pausing, if you're not expanding, if you're not asking them the next question and just being curious a little longer, it's easy to slam your cultural overlay into a conversation. So back to your original questions, Brazilians, Japanese, 
it's the curiosity to ask them, what does that mean for you? Sure. That's going to expand not only your cultural insights in that particular moment, but it's also going to expand the way they feel comfortable making contributions. You talk about being an active contributor. What is the difference between an active listener or active listening and deep listening? I think for active listeners, listen really well to the words, what's said. And deep listeners listen very carefully to what's not said. Sure. Remember the, the maths. A deep listener is listening to those 725 words that aren't spoken. When you know the maths of the speaking speed and the thinking speed, you're going to be asking one extra question as a deep listener. You're going to be curious just a little bit longer and you'll discover things that avoid work in progress reworks as an example on a project sure. or avoid um, selling something to a customer that they didn't actually ask for or an employee who leaves before they want to. If your question has got more than eight words, it's probably biased. It's probably a statement, not a question. I would give you these three tips. If you want to listen carefully to what's not said, kind of sounds like Yoda, doesn't it? These three phrases will be very easy for you to remember. So the shorter your question, the more likely you are to help them to discover what they want to say. So the first phrase to use is, tell me more. Now, don't just say, tell me more. I was like, make it your own. Sure. I'm fascinated. Tell me more about that. Still less than eight words. The second one that you could use is, and what else? And the final one is the most potent. Use this carefully because some people can perceive this as intimidation but it's not designed to be. Use it sparingly. Use it skillfully. Use it appropriately. The third phrase is, now don't worry, nothing happened with the audio, and it's no coincidence that the word listen and the word silent share exactly the same letters. And it's back to the point you made earlier on, James. In the West, we have all these phrases, the pregnant pause, the awkward silence, the deafening silence. Just pause. And you will be shocked what you hear as they collect their thoughts and say what they mean. So those three things, tell me more and what else, and just just pause. pause for silence. When you do that, you will start to hear the things that are deep for them the things that really matter for them, the things that come from a place that's about thinking, feeling, and doing. It's about who they are, not just what they say as well. It'll create closer relationships. It'll create more sustainable relationships as well. The the term deep suggests there are levels and 
without applying some of these techniques and approaches to becoming a better, deeper listener. We're just swimming about in that that top top level. Most listening literature will tell you to focus on the speaker as the starting point for listening, and that's an interesting place to start, but it's not the most productive. The first thing you need to listen to at level one on the five levels is you. What's the noise going on in your head in any one moment? What's the story you're bringing to the conversation that is still the story from the last meeting, the last phone call, the last interaction you had with a person? Most of us turn up to the next conversation with a radio station playing in our head of some <laughs> distraction. So, so level one, listen to yourself. In the Australian Indigenous community, they have this beautiful phrase. It's called dadiri. It means listen to your lands, your people, and yourself. And that's kind of three-dimensional listening even before you start. So listening takes place before you even turn up to the conversation. You can't tune into the speaker if you've got so many browser tabs open up in your own mind that you're running out of memory to listen to someone else. So... Three tips for level one is manage your electronic distractions, whether it's a phone, a laptop, a tablet, and increasingly connected watches. All of them have one button you can press to switch off the notifications. If the conversation's important enough to have, it's important enough not to be distracted by notifications. Tip number two, drink a glass of water before the conversation and drink a glass of water for the length of the conversation as well. Uh, that doesn't mean coffee. That means <laughs> water. Uh, so, And tip number three is just take three deep breaths before you go into a conversation. And the ancients all have breathing techniques. They all have hydration techniques. This is not new wisdom. This is just really basic. Mm. If you're ready to listen at level one, that's great. Any questions about level one before we skate through no, the more, next more, four? More, more com- commentary on breathing. I have been listening to Sadhguru uh, quite a bit, and he had this wonderful phrase that he uses to explain what yoga means to him. And he frames it really as being present and doing the most fundamental thing to all humans, breathing, and be more mindful with breathing. The other thing he talks about is just relaxing our shoulders and that comes through those three deep breaths he does talk about this quite a bit because otherwise you're fighting the universe you will never win it's a losing battle every time you know so just relax your shoulders and breathe and it's funny and you're practicing yoga essentially anyway well i had the opportunity to interview james nestor who's written a book about breathing and he studied it deeply in the modern context uh, with all the technology available to modern humans, MRIs and fMRIs and all kinds of oxygen measuring devices. And he's also looked at ancient scripts, whether they're Indian, whether they're Chinese. And uh, he said the parallels between breathing and listening are quite amazing. They're both practices. They're both practices that humans are unconscious of. So a simple thing is... Uh, Most Westerners don't know that the correct way to breathe is in through your nose and out through your mouth. Uh, A lot of people will breathe through their mouth and through their, in through their mouth and out through their mouth. 
And uh, James said that uh, your ability to breathe and your ability to listen are so closely correlated. So, yeah, if you get a chance, it's definitely a really, really well-written book. A level two is listening to the content. And when we talk about content, we use that phrase deliberately where it's not what we hear. It's what we hear. It's what we see. It's what we sense. So it's about emotion as well as body language, as well as words and audio as well. So for a lot of people in the past couple of years, they have become frustrated with video conferences because they say, I miss out on all the body language. And I say, oh, you are certainly missing a trick because you can stare at that person and they will never know what you're doing. (laughs) You can stare deeply into their eyes. And so a technique we talk about in our Deep Listening Ambassadors community is um, just notice the colour of the speaker's eyes when you get distracted. Mm. See if you can pick pick their eye colour. But equally, most body language happens from the shoulders up. Sure. So there's we're, there's we're often up here. the viewers can't yeah. see me right now. I'm doing what I normally do and talk talking with my hands. But <laughs> so for for level two is again be conscious that what you hear, what you see, and what you sense. A lot of people go, oh, you know, how do I deal with emotional conversations? And I say embrace them because again. That's the speaker telling you what matters to them. Don't don't push away the emotions. Uh, uh, level three is called listening for the context. So uh, level one and two, we're listening to ourselves and we're listening to the content. Now we're starting to listen for things. So we're listening for the context. And then the most common context most people miss is the backstory. Sure. So if I said to you, uh, a quiz show contestant is being investigated by the police, you could guess a movie, or I could say Jamal and Salim, their mother has been killed in a Mumbai street riot, and until they're teenagers, they're in the hands of the Mumbai street gangs, and Jamal meets Ladaka, the love of his life, and she loves to watch a show called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So Jamal decides to get a proper job in a contact centre and learn lots of trivia, which makes him the perfect contestant for a quiz show who wants to be a millionaire. In fact, he's too perfect. He's accurate, he's fast in his response and raises the suspicion of the host. The quiz show contestant is being investigated by the police. Ah, fantastic. Yeah. Now, contestant. many, many people, when we have conversations with them, will say, quiz show contestant investigated by the police, they will talk about now and the thing that's the crucial scene from their perspective. Mm. But to understand the context, particularly in any design work, you need to be empathetic to the history as well as the future. And if we understand how have creativity failed in the past in this context, in this system, in this organisation, in this culture, then we're more likely to understand how to make it successful. My favourite phrase here is, just take me back to when this kicked off. Just take me back to when you first noticed it. Just take me Mm. back to when this became an issue inside the organisation. 
And again, you're not asking this question for you. Again, when you listen through the backstory, you understand political integration, you understand barriers, and you understand how the group comes together. Now, when you ignore the context, you get a lot of inertia in projects. When you ignore the context, you have multiple coalitions fighting the key theme of the idea. You'll have the pros and the cons, as opposed to get everybody to tell their backstory, and that will unify the positions going forward. I sense there was a change for you when I talked about the context, James. What's different in your thinking? Well, I drew parallels between the creative process again and storytelling broadly. And the way you demonstrated that was just absolutely perfect. It suddenly becomes a richer experience for the listener and a far more empowering one for the speaker. And to be able to draw that out of them uh, is, is, is a true art. And it's a true pleasure as well. It takes a story that had so a general um, interesting premise behind it, but then <laughs> it turns it into something that could be articulated in any number of modalities, whether it be a film, whether it be just a story that may be told in a conversation, whether it be a book or whatever else. It just expands the opportunities for people to engage with this story in so many more ways. So you're getting more value, you know, and economy out of the simple act of being a deeper listener. Uh, When I was talking about two coalitions, uh, you listening right now couldn't see James furiously nodding his head because I think when I said two coalitions emerge when the backstory isn't fully expanded, I reckon you were thinking about a project. I probably was, yeah. Yeah, it's so much of what we do in the organisational context is – trying to get buy-in, for lack of a better mm. word, you know. And and sometimes, rightfully or wrongly, it that buy-in depends on how well you can frame or tell or communicate the story. And it is like a bit of a dance. And so for some people, that dance may feel exhausting. Those th- th- There's a bit of a dichotomy at play. I think you want to be genuine and authentic, but at the same time um, – you realise that you have to package and share your thoughts in a way that they're going to elicit buy-in and and understanding and support. I think the people who find more success in being less um, adept at conveying their approach, I think they have to build a lot of support and trust around them, whereas the people who are quite good at expressing their stories and providing that better context sort of can generate trust in a far more rapid way. Um, I'm not sure if that's right in your research, but it feels like that's, that's. Um, I guess politicians come to mind, you know, they've got to speak on a whole bunch of different topics and we're in the phase of a, an election coming up and they're, they're campaigning. And it's interesting to see our politicians on both in both parties apply or struggle to apply a lot of these deep listening techniques. Yeah, the only... Uh Things that they think represent listening of focus groups, and by their definition, they are focusing on a narrow constituency, not ultimately the constituency they serve. So, focus groups are a really lovely example of hearing, not listening, and the difference between 
hearing and listening is taking action. I just want to bring us back to not listening to the backstory. When the backstory is not shared across a group in a process of creation, in a process of design, do you think this creates a really big barrier in implementation, James? Because I think the opposite can happen too. We get strong, passionate agreement on the idea in the phase of birthing it, but when it comes to the idea having to grow up and go out in the big, bad world and survive by itself, the lack of a robust understanding of the backstory and the barriers limits the ability for that idea to flourish and succeed. You've got lots of broad context yourself because you've got so many of these projects, campaigns that you've been working on. I think the opposite happens too. If we're too quick to agree on the idea and not debate it, to make it robust when it goes mm. out in – do you see the opposite as well? Yeah, sure, absolutely, absolutely. And what does a healthy debate look like between two deep listeners? I love this phrase that, that people use. I challenge them during the debate, <laughs> and, I, and I would often say, I hope you challenged the idea rather than the person. So poor debate is personal – Strong debate is debating the ideas, the concepts, and the outcomes. Good debate is also conscious of the fact that people will debate the idea differently to use the labels we talked about earlier, and I think labels don't belong on people. They belong on food jars and pharmaceutical products (laughs) for very good reasons. But uh, extroverts and introverts uh, is an example we used earlier on know that an extrovert needs to talk to think. That's their way of processing their idea. And if we cut them off and say, you've gone on for too long, they will come back later on and try and express that idea again because they haven't fully expressed it. So healthy debate, again, is also conscious of different ways that people express ideas and allow them a format and a forum to do that appropriately. Sure. How can marketers and their brands apply deep listening to their audiences? And what would this look like in practice? So I've had the opportunity to interview many market researchers, corporate anthropologists, and they all conclude the same thing. Deep listening by a brand is actually doing what the last piece of research asked you to do. Stop researching your audience. Actually do what they asked you in the last research brief, and that would be respectful, deep listening. I think too many people who are new to an organisation will come in in a marketing context and go, great, time for some new packaging, some new pricing, some new branding, some new approaches. Let's commission some research. Please don't. It's completely disrespectful to the backstory. It's completely disrespectful to the context. Sure. Read that 90-page tome that the market research company generated the last time and ask the very simple question. 
Which one of these recommendations have we implemented? I was working with a marketer four years ago, and I asked them a very simple question. When did that brand start? And they said, honestly, I have no idea. This was an Australian food brand, and it was a very well-known food brand. And she goes, well, save me the trouble. What's the, what's the origin story? I said, no, that's not my job. That is your job. So she got on applying to a very small island in Tasmania and went to the dairy that created these cheeses and spent three days talking to the communities and the history behind this particular brand of cheese. Two weeks later, I met her up again. And she bought me a bag of cheese because that's my guilty pleasure. <laughs> you and me both. She said, Oscar, I cannot believe how well the traditional story of how this dairy came into being and their interaction with Australian Indigenous communities is perfect for our brand. Why haven't we told this story? So one question I would always say to marketers is go back to the very foundation of that idea. Mm. I was talking mm. to somebody in a very well-known red beverage company. <laughs> and Listeners I was, can have a guess, have a guess who, who that might be. <laughs> and, and I simply said to them, you do realise that your organisation started in a pharmacy and the route trade wasn't a retailer like big supermarket chains. And they were so obsessed with retail performance. And I said, go back to your origin story and then go back to the modern day representatives of those origin stories and you will find the growth you're looking for. Sure enough, this took a little longer, six months. They came back and went, how did you know? And I said, I don't. I just know that when you don't know the backstory, you're often missing very rich, insightful evidence that can point you to where the future is. But when you ignore it, do so at your peril. Working as a marketer is tough. There's massive pressure from finance to drive short-term outcomes while being custodian of the long-term brand positioning. I do not underestimate how hard that is. James, I will always say that when I notice a difference between uh, a good and a great marketer, a good good marketer believes they're the custodian of the brand, and great marketers understand that brands only exist in the minds of the people that buy the product or the people who interact with the service. Yeah. yeah. And when, when you know the brand custodian is not you, it's in fact the people who experience and interact with the product every day, that that brings a sense of humility and a sense of how, how do we sustain this beyond my term as the custodian for this brand. You've worked for some of the largest brands and consulted to some of the large, largest brands in the world, spending 10 years at Microsoft, you mentioned earlier. It sort of leads me to a question around your thoughts on listening technology, and more so the listening technology used in virtual assistants like uh, Alexa, Siri, Google Assistant. 
I mean, these devices are listening constantly for these wake words in order for them to be effective. You know, hey, Siri or um, Alexa, what are your thoughts on the role technology plays? And will technology help us become better, deeper listeners or should it? An important thing to understand is listening requires permission. The absence of listening is called spying. (laughs) Yes. And one of those brands you mentioned does not wait for the wake words. They are literally recording every sound in the room. And you can go and look up your own history with them. When it comes to listening technologies today, they're at the reading level of a kindergarten student. Over time... It will improve. And I think some of the use cases where these devices will make a difference is in situations where we're talking about the more vulnerable members of our community. Sure. People who are frail and aged, people who are in different states of ability in their life as well. So I think they have a role to play there. But as with many of these technologies, we overestimate their capacity in the short term and we underestimate their capacity in the long term. In a decade from now, these devices will have the reading level of a high school student. They're not going to be able to listen to a contextual conversation even a decade from now. Sure. That is quite a staggering thought. I think uh, I saw some statistics on the the take-up and the use of digital uh, assistance, virtual assistance rather. The the figures are quite high. So if you read the stats, it'd be like 57% of people use them on a regular basis. But um, when you dig a little deeper, it's because we've accidentally pressed a Siri or we've, (laughs) you know what I mean? So this is unknowingly using these virtual assistants as opposed to using them with any purpose or (laughs) agenda in mind, you know. Oscar, listening and communicating is a deeply, deeply personal experience for many people. But how can an individual who has been doing things a certain way all their lives, what would you say to them when embarking on this challenge of being a a deeper, better listener? Rather than focus on what to do, we need to spend a little bit more time thinking about how we do it. And one phrase to use in a one-on-one listening context is simply this, what would make this a great conversation for you? If you ask that at the beginning of a conversation with someone, one, they'll be delighted to hear the question because rarely are they being asked that question. Number two, that becomes a compass setting for your listening for the rest of the conversation. If it's a group meeting, ask the host at the beginning of the meeting, either one of these questions. Uh, How would you like me to listen? What would make this a great meeting for you? How would you like to take questions? And therefore, James, as a host, your role is to role model that and to say, before we start, a great meeting outcome would be blah, 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 blah. How I'd like to take questions is da 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 
I just want to check with everybody. What do you want to get out of the meeting today? Mm, mm, mm. This is level three backstory. This is bringing everyone yeah, in and yeah. checking them all in. So they not only physically present in the room, you've made them mentally present in the room. Their attention is now in that moment. Sure. So whether it's a one-on-one or we'll make this a great meeting for you or in a group session, um, and if it's either virtual or online, you can ask that question. Just get in early with the host and say, hey, James, just curious what would make this a great meeting for you, and off you go. Again, this will all help you get your listening compass pointing north and everybody in the same direction when it comes to listening. Just quickly on that attention, I know you've spoken about in attention in and attention out. I wonder if you could mm. quickly explain that concept. Well, ne- neither's right or wrong. It's what's appropriate for the moment. So attention in is as a host, I wonder how I'm going to go. I'm really nervous. So your attention's in on you. As opposed to you're a host, you welcome everybody in. Hi, how are you going? What have you been up to today? Really looking forward to getting a great outcome with this meeting. In that case, your attention's out on them. A a really effective listener notices where their attention is in the moment and where it needs to go. It's not what your current state is. It's where do you need to go next and make that choiceful rather than a default or something that's habitual. So a lot of people may default to attention out or they may default to attention in. Neither is correct. It's what's appropriate for the group outcome or the outcome of the meeting if you're in a one-on-one conversation. It plays out a little bit further with attention as well because we have people who pay attention and then we have people who give attention. It's like paying attention is like, tax. You have to do it. You turn up. Again, neither is right or wrong. You can't give attention for an entire conversation. It's really draining and taxing. But there are times where you have to adjust where your attention is. And when you're listening to yourself at level one, you can just do a little quick self-diagnosis and go, where's my attention right now? Great. Where does it need to be? Great. Sure. And then the final question is, is that going to be helpful for the group or the purpose or the outcome? Not trying to tap into anything spiritual, but it is quite a self-reflective question to ask, where is my attention? And because my, sometimes my default is, I don't know where this comes from. It's probably some deep set um, bias I have within me. If someone takes issue with something that I'm associated with, I default to blaming myself. So therefore, I think my attention is in. I look at what have I done wrong? Wrong. How could I have fixed this? What should I have done? In in that moment, uh, uh, somebody's critical of the work because it's not your work, by the way. Just happens to come through you in the moment. It's just like there's no original ideas in the world, just original interpretations. Um, they may have their own version of attention in being expressed to you. They might be fully formed. But I think in that moment where you sense there's attention, uh, do you verbalise that? Do you make the implicit explicit? Are you communicating about how you communicate and just say, look, I just, I just need to pause for a moment to reflect. I'm sensing there's a difference between our approaches. Now, that's how you take attention in out because you're saying it's mm-hmm. our approaches. And you're sensing it. 
Now, that doesn't necessarily need a resolution, a discussion, but you just simply say, look, I I just need to pause because I'm sensing a difference in our approach. And just pause and, and you need to listen to yourself and go, where's that coming from? In my body? Is it coming from mm-hmm. my head? Mm-hmm. Is it coming from history? Is it coming from my relationship with this person? But a lot of us just go into our head and continue the conversation. Mm-hmm. So making the implicit explicit and communicating about how you're communicating with yourself will very quickly go, oh, well, that'll give the other person pause for thought, and they may choose to expand or elaborate or engage in a very different way as opposed to you getting wound up and buried in yourself. Can you see yourself using that in a dialogue? Absolutely. I think it will take some training. It doesn't come um, instinctively, and it is something that I think I'll need to train and work towards, but be more mindful of. And and it's great to know that we can do these things to become better at identifying and addressing those responses when they do come up within ourselves, you know. And rather, my invitation to you is prototype or experiment them. Yeah. Yeah. Don't have to always practice them. Pick a low-risk conversation, a great trusting relationship where you can use that one rather than a tense ongoing relationship sure, you sure. might have. Well, Oscar, now, <laughs> I think I've asked the questions that I think I wanted to that I may have missed out on earlier. That last question that I asked you was a level four question. Sure. You know, on behalf of the audience, what's the question that we haven't covered? Uh, often I pose that question back to a host that's an attention our question, by the way. You've given us a lot to think about, and we've heard and listened to a lot of your amazing thoughts on deep listening and how to be better, deeper listeners ourselves. If you were to provide a short, succinct summary or even question, I call them bites of wisdom, to someone who wanted to be a deeper listener, what would it be? Your job as a listener is not to understand what the speaker is saying. Your job as a listener is to help the speaker understand what they're thinking. That's brilliant. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that that was the end. <laughs> that was the end. See, I've got to really work on that because I love your, your – you live it and you're such a guru when it comes to this stuff. I'm in awe and admiration Oscar Trimboli, thank you so much for your time. Now, where can our listeners find out more about you? Rather than worrying about me, uh, why don't you discover your listening barriers yourself? Go to listeningquiz.com, take the seven-minute quiz. You'll get a report, and that report will give you three very simple recommendations based on your listening barriers, And you can make progress from a distracted listener to a deeper listener. Just visit listeningquiz.com. Fantastic. Oscar Trimboli, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks again for your time and uh, have a wonderful long weekend. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Cheers. That was great. Thank you. 
Sorry, I stumbled a bit. I, I don't know why I got quite nervous. I haven't spoken to you for a while, so I was kind of, <laughs> it's weird. So, to, so ima- imagine the audience has heard that. What's one question they wish you would have asked that we haven't discussed? Well, I'm still recording. If you'd like to find out more about me or the B-Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word, jamesbside.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at B-Side Podcast. If you have any suggestions or feedback on the show, please email me at hello at jamesbside.com. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. The B-Side with James Barrow is produced by me, and I really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential. Thanks for listening, and until next episode, cheers. Cheers.